music according to Gittith of the sons of Korah, a psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty, listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God, look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. We'll pause our reading in God's holy word in order to sing. I led you through the opening verses of the 119th Psalm. Uh, this Lord's Day afternoon, we turn to the 120th Psalm. And in coming Lord's Day afternoons, we'll work our way through 121 and 122 as well. So Psalm 120, uh, page 612 in your pew Bible, has the title, A Song of Ascents. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of our God. May he bless it in our hearing this afternoon. Beloved in the Lord Jesus, many of our journeys begin from home. Most of our journeys begin from home. Whether you're going on a road trip, whether you're going on an airplane, you usually start that journey from home. But there's one journey that begins far from home. It is the journey of each Christian uh, individually, and it's the journey of the Christian church collectively. Now, when you read Psalm 120 without its title, then the image of a person on a journey doesn't come to mind. When you read the next Psalm, 121, as we'll do next week, Lord willing, well, the whole psalm's about a journey. The whole psalm is about traveling. Obvious. But Psalm 120 is not obviously about a journey, except for the fact that there's a title above the psalm, and it's the title, A Song of Ascents. That title will appear for 15 psalms in a row. 
We begin with 120, we end with 134. A song of ascents. To ascend, this is for the kids here this afternoon, to ascend means to go up. So if any of you kids have a bedroom upstairs in your house, uh, then each night uh, you are to ascend in order to go up to your bedroom. And if you can imagine yourself singing a song as you go upstairs to bed, probably a song of lament, because what kid really wants to go up to bed? As you sing a song while you ascend, you're singing a song of ascents. Well, obviously the people aren't going to bed, so where are the people going in these psalms, songs of ascent? Well, they're going up uh, to Jerusalem. And more specifically, they're going up to the temple in Jerusalem in order that they might worship God. God had said um, to his people in the law of Moses, I'm going to appoint one single place where you are going to gather to worship me. I'm going to place my name there, and you're going to go there. And there happens to be up relative to most of Israel. And so the, uh, the believers of old would ascend to Jerusalem, and they would ascend to the temple for worship. And as they went up, they sang their songs of ascent. But there's much more to this group of songs than the geography of uh, Jerusalem and the journey that involved going up to worship there. And we're thankful for that, that there's more involved than the geography of Jerusalem because um, we are people who in Christ are no longer called to go up uh, to uh, Jerusalem. You might remember that conversation uh, between uh, Jesus and a woman at the well Uh, in Samaria, John chapter 4, and they get into this theological discussion about where the right place to worship God is because the Samaritans said it's on this mountain, Gerizim, and the Jews said it's on this mountain, Jerusalem. Jesus, like the Jews, are right, but it doesn't matter. The time is now here where you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. So we're we're in a new covenant. Uh, We're not worried about the geography of Jerusalem. I just share that with you to to help you understand this Song of Ascents uh, title. So as we give our attention to uh, this psalm and and the next two that follow it in successive uh, Lord's Day afternoons, I'm going to take my cue from the Father uh, Augustine, uh, Church Father in Northern Africa, uh, in the early centuries of the church, and he asked his congregation, uh, you know, where does this journey take place? And he answered, it takes place in the geography of your heart. And then he asked, from where does this journey take place? And he told his congregation, this journey takes place from the Valley of Tears. And he had in mind the 84th Psalm. And that sixth verse, which mentions a valley called the Valley of Baca. And it's often referred to as the Valley of Tears uh, because baka sounds like the Hebrew word for crying. Psalm 84 describes a journey that begins far from home. A journey that goes through the Valley of baka, the place of weeping. And there are a lot of tears in the 120th Psalm. 
and you hear the psalmist crying. Even, even the tune we sang, we don't sing it very often, as I said, um, but you might have been like, well, I don't know if I want to sing that tune. It's kind of, you know, depressing. What's the point? This is, this is not a happy song. This is a sad song. This is a song of lament. And you hear the psalmist in, in, in the psalm crying. You hear him lamenting precisely because he is far from home. And the fact that the, the scribes of old positioned the 120th as the first song of the Song of Ascents is a reminder also to the Christian today that your journey, our journey as a church collectively, is a journey that begins far from home. That's the message I bring to you this afternoon as we open God's Word to this psalm that we are on a journey that begins far from home. Every person in this world is born east of Eden. Some of you remember that as a John Steinbeck novel. At least I think it was Steinbeck, I can't remember. East of Eden, reference to the fact that after Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, um, which was not only their home, it was God's home with them. After they fell into sin, they were cast out of the garden and they lived east of Eden. And ever since then, every single human being is born east of Eden. That is, everyone is born far from home. And that means that by nature, we're actually all prodigals, if I can open your mind to that parable of Jesus about the prodigal son. The son who awakens to the reality that he is far from home because he had gone off to that faraway place there to live wildly only one day to wake up and realize just how far he was from home. By nature, we're all prodigals. By God's grace, we wake up to the reality that we are living far from home. And so the journey of every Christian is a journey that begins far from home. Now for the Israelites who received this collection of songs... That's more than a metaphor. For us, it's a, a metaphor. But for the Israelites, this collection was gathered for them when they were in exile. This collection was written at different times. It wasn't all written you know, in the exile or after the exile. But, but the collections gathered together for the exile people. It was put together for a people who were quite literally far from home. But for the psalmist, as I'll show you a little bit later when we get to some literal place names, for the psalmist, these literal places are themselves metaphors. And what that allows you to do, even though you're living 
far from that geography. And even though you're living under a far different covenant, you can, you can take your place alongside the psalmist as he ascends from the valley of tears. In one way or another, every Christian can identify with the psalmist and the place from where he begins his journey. And as he ascends from this valley of tears, there's only one way he's capable of ascending, and that is with prayer. I mean, who of us can ascend without the help and without the comfort of the Lord? And so I draw your attention to the 120th Psalm, verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Psalmist here begins by expressing his confidence in the Lord. His God is a God who hears the distressed cries of his people. He answers the cries of his people. And presumably what the, what the psalmist is drawing on here is his past experiences of the Lord and the people's past experiences of the Lord as the God who does hear the distressed cries of his people and answer them. And so he's able with confidence to pray, save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Well, here you're, here you're given a window into why the psalmist is experiencing distress. It's because all around him are people who speak lies. All around him are people who, when they open their mouths, uh, they're speaking with deceit on their tongues. All around him are people for whom lying and deceit just come naturally. And we don't know if his distress is, is kind of a personal distress in the sense that uh, he has personally been the victim of lying lips and deceitful tongues, or if his distress is just from the fact that he is living in this, this culture, this society, where, where most of the people around him are people who speak this way, people of lies and people of deceit. We can't really tell which it is. Maybe it's both. Likely it's both. And and again, as, as we're ascending with him from this valley of tears, maybe you can identify even with this element of his distress. I'm going to hazard a guess that some of you have been the victim of lying lips and deceitful tongues, that you've experienced personal hurt because of these kinds of things. And all of you live in a society and in a culture where these are hardly foreign things. You live in a culture and you live in a society where the truth of God is opposed by the lie. Such is the reality of the presence of evil in this world. The lie has been opposed to the truth from the very beginning uh, of this world. And when I say very beginning, I'm talking about that, that place that used to be home, Eden. That wonderful garden where evil suddenly, and we don't know when, but it suddenly appears And lies flow from the serpent's lips. And deceit is bound up in the serpent's tongue. 
And we observe in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, the devil opposing the truth of God. Did God actually say? He asks. And then he declares, you shall not surely die. You know, Jesus in, in John chapter 8 uh, would describe the devil as the father of lies. He is a liar, says Jesus, and he's the father of lies. Any, anyone who uh, lies is speaking devil language is what Jesus is saying. As a liar, the devil stands opposed to the truth of God. Jesus came proclaiming the truth. And when people didn't believe Jesus, Jesus said to them, do you know why you don't believe me? Do you know why you won't accept the truth of my words? Because you are of your father, the devil. Throughout the ages, those who call God Father have experienced the distress of living in a world where the father of lies is actively busy opposing the truth of God. And it is in this place of distress that the Christian personally and the church collectively finds itself crying out to the Lord for deliverance. I call on the Lord in my distress. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. This is where the journey begins. Begins with a cry to the Lord for salvation from out of this valley of tears. And it is after this initial prayer for deliverance that the psalmist goes on to ask a question of the evil that distresses him. You see his question in verse 3. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? At the heart of this question is the pursuit of justice. But rather than addressing God with this question and asking God, what are you going to do about the evil that distresses me? What are you going to do about all the deceitful tongues and lying lips? Rather than go there, as sometimes the psalmists do, the psalmist talks to evil. The psalmist addresses the deceitful tongue. Asks, what will the Lord do to you? And what more besides? They say of lawyers in the courtroom, you should never ask a question to which you don't already know the answer. I think our psalmist would make a great lawyer in the courtroom. He asks a question to which he knows the answer. And he knows the answer because he knows his God. And he knows that his God is a God of justice. That his God is a God of truth. That his God is not going to allow evil to triumph in this world. And so the psalmist says to the deceitful tongue of the Lord, he will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows and burning coals of the broom tree. The psalmist here is picturing the deceitful tongue being pierced by the arrows of a sharp warrior and the iron tips of those arrows have been shaped and fashioned and formed in the glowing coals of the blacksmith's shop. The deceitful tongue is being pierced 
by the sharp arrows of the warrior. Now to understand the picture, you need to recognize a couple things. First, that a warrior's sharp arrows are a metaphor for the powerful impact of words. And second, that justice in the world of the psalmist is centered on the principle of an eye for an eye, or in this case, an arrow for an arrow. The deceitful tongue that is busy raining down lies upon the godly like a warrior's sharp arrows will experience the wrath of God rain down upon them like a warrior's sharp arrows. See, this is what the psalmist is saying. I'm confident that the justice of God will prevail in this world with all of its evil. That what I see now and what I experience now is present reality, but it's not ultimate reality. And the question I have for you this afternoon is, do you share his confidence? We imagine ourselves ascending with him from this valley of tears. He ascends with prayer. He ascends with with a measure of confidence. And I want to ask you, as you look around this world, as you live in this world, are you able to look evil in the eye and say, you will have your day at the hand of God. I think it's easy to look around this world and just feel absolutely hopeless. Lies find their mark even in the church. Deceit accomplishes its purposes even among Christians. As I thought about this, and the feeling of of hopelessness that arrives amid the present reality. I was reminded of Asaph in the 73rd Psalm, and you might be familiar with that psalm. This psalmist named Asaph looks around at the world in which he lives, and he begins to feel the ground shift and fall away beneath his feet. He begins to experience a measure of hopelessness on his journey. Until, he says in the 17th verse, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. And he goes on to speak about the judgments of God that are to come. See, that's the beauty of coming into worship each Lord's Day. Because one of the important things about getting here on the Lord's Day is that we get to be reminded about the arc of the story, where this whole thing is going. You too get to come into, as it were, the sanctuary and understand where this thing ends. And you understand where it ends because you you understand the centrality of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Because the eternal Son of God descends into the valley of tears. The eternal Son of God descends, and as He descends, 
the warrior's sharp arrows begin to rain down upon him. He is met with deceitful tongues. And he is pierced, body and soul, because of those deceitful tongues. But not only does he meet the sharp arrows that come from the deceitful tongues, he meets the sharp arrows of God's wrath against sin and against evil. But having made an end of sin at the cross, he begins his ascent from the valley of tears. And he ascends from the dead all the way into heaven. And there he is right now busy defending and preserving his church against every evil until he comes again in glory to usher in the end of all evil and the life of the world to come. That's the arc of the story. That's where the whole thing is going. And when we talk about the end of evil and the life of the world to come, that's home. That's home. And it's home for all who trust in Christ. And if you haven't put your trust in Christ, I exhort you to do that, to put your trust in Christ. But I want you to understand, and this is true for all of us, I want you to understand that the moment you put your trust in Christ is the moment you wake up and you realize that you're actually far from home. And you'll lament with the psalmist. And you'll say with the psalmist, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. I'll satisfy your curiosity about these place names. Meshech, eastern Turkey near the Black Sea. Kedar, the Arabian Desert. If you know a little of your Middle Eastern geography, you know that those places are quite far apart. And you'll also know that they're both quite far from Jerusalem. And you know that it's actually impossible for the psalmist to be in both places at one time. That he's not actually dwelling in Meshech. That he's not actually living in the tents of Kedar. That these distant places are metaphors. They're, they're metaphors for the evil that surrounds him and from which he seeks deliverance. He speaks of living in these places in order to communicate his feelings of unease. His feelings of distress at being just so, so far from home. Being in places that are just so vastly different from home. I don't know if you've ever had that experience in terms of geography and your home and, and being somewhere else. I remember many years ago, a young couple in my church, they decided to go traveling all throughout uh, Asia. And one of their friends uh, said, you know, I want to join you for just a, a few weeks. So he was going to join them for three weeks. Uh, he flew to Thailand. Flew home like two days later. And it wasn't just that he was far from home and homesick in that sense. Yes, kids, if you ever get homesick, know that adults get it too. This was a grown man, young man. 
But the reason he came home was he just couldn't handle being in a place that was so vastly different from home. And he felt the need immediately to just go back home. And so that's what he did. But now imagine the feelings that would come to you if you know you can't immediately get back home. And as much as you don't like being in that place, that's your place right now. And then you begin to understand the words of the psalmist when he says, woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of of Kedar. Now you begin to understand his lament. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. See, he laments because he cannot go home. He wants to go home, but he cannot go home. He's stuck in this place where he has this strong feeling of alienation from from the people around him. He says, you know, they hate peace. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I love peace, he says. Shalom, you might know the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. It's not just about a peace in the sense of the absence of war, that's there, but it's, it's, it's shalom is wholeness. It, it's everything in balance. It's a world where, where truth and justice and beauty and goodness are, are pursued and experienced collectively and, and communally. But when he speaks of shalom, he says the people around me are for, for war. I am a man of shalom, but when I speak, they are for war. And the war is not a literal war. The war is the war of words that the psalmist begins speaking of with his opening uh, petition. The war is the war of words. The weapons are the sharpened arrows of lying lips and deceitful tongues. And while he has expressed great confidence, verse 1, that the Lord answers, while he has expressed great confidence in the middle verses that the Lord will act justly one day, nothing by the end of the psalm has changed in terms of the reality of his present situation. The war of lies and deceit rages on around him and home feels further away than ever before. If you can imagine this, you understand a little better Psalm 84 and that moment that we sang from in the, in the fifth stanza where he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. One day, O Lord, in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. But here's the reality for this psalmist in 120. He's living the thousand elsewhere. And he has no choice. He's dwelling among the tents of the wicked and he has no choice. Oh, that he could just for one day go be the janitor in the house of God. You know, there have been times in the history of the Christian church where Christians have felt, and this is a psalm of feelings, where Christians have felt closer to home, or at least they've felt that they're living in some place that 
is sort of neutral territory, halfway home. Maybe that's accurate, maybe that's rose-colored glasses. But certainly I think our, our present reality as Church of Jesus, as Christians in our own country, is this growing feeling that whatever neutral space we thought we shared, whatever neutral place we thought we lived in before, the place we now live in is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel of peace which Jesus proclaimed and which Jesus calls his church to proclaim. And we wonder with the psalmist, how long can we do this? How long shall we dwell in Meshech? How long are we going to have to live among the tents of Kedar? The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, uh, we are pilgrims and we are sojourners. Aliens, exiles in this world. And there's, there's moments, and I'm sure you felt it, where home just feels so far away. But as you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be of good confidence. For he who descended has ascended. You see, that, that ark that I talked about earlier, it's a guarantee because Christ has already traveled the road. Christ is already home. And Christ is home, busy preparing a place for all who have begun the journey through faith in Him. But in the meantime, Christ calls His disciples to live as sojourners in Meshech. And, and that's hard. Because those who call Meshech home have a tendency to hate the foreigners among them. There is this almost instinctive negative reaction to the foreigner, to the immigrant. Talking with someone this past week that uh, they said, you know, used to live in Smithers and, and when we were kids, you never made it to the bus stop without being abused. We were dirty duchies. And we were DPs. Some of you might remember that term. Displaced persons. When the first immigrants showed up, uh, they weren't welcomed necessarily with open arms. The story repeats itself. There's immigrants today who show up and they're not welcomed with open arms. And we just have different names instead of dirty duchies. This is life. So often, as it's experienced by the Christian who's living among the tents of Kedar. And it's easy to respond to that in a way that's wholly unlike Jesus. And yet Jesus says you need to live for peace. You need to be for peace. You need to live out peace and you need to speak the gospel of peace even if it means you're going to get more arrows coming your way. And it is precisely because it's hard that Jesus doesn't just give you happy songs to sing as Christians. 
Jesus doesn't just give you happy songs of ascent. Jesus also gives you sad songs to reflect the feelings that exist among a people whose journey begins far from home. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand.